0: Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the MBA podcast, where our hosts welcome guest and healthcare innovator, Susie Engwall. Susie is the vice president of early medtech development at Alira Health. Susie has been in healthcare for the last 17 years, but it was her passion to make change in this space that catapulted her into the healthcare innovation arena seven years ago. She joined Alira Health April 2022 and has a BS in healthcare innovation from Arizona State. In her current role, she works with early med tech companies to help them navigate the challenging space of healthcare innovation, connecting startups with the right resources, including everything from clinical to regulatory to market access and more. Prior to Alira, Susie spent six years as the National Director of the Innovation Lab at the Innovation Institute where she worked directly with health system leadership teams to set up and run their internal innovation programs and bring together cross-functional teams to solve some of today's biggest healthcare challenges. Susie is also a leader and mentor for the Founder Institute Health Tech Program, a mentor for medtech innovators and an advisor for C6 systems. And she can often be found teaching human-centered design in various forums. Her goal is to continue to assist promising healthcare startups in finding success in rather challenging healthcare verticals. Today's episode is all about design thinking. What it is, why do I need it, and how is it done? Let's listen in now.
1: Welcome, Susie. Thanks for joining the MedTech Business Academy podcast. We're excited to have you on. Um, Joining me today on the call are Tom Hickey. Mike Sprduy, Scott Alexander, I am Skender Darity, and we make up the med tech experts. Very excited to follow up with you and uh, learn more about you. Um, you know, we, we just heard about your, your bio. Um, and when you look at places like the National Director of Innovation Labs, and the institute and the foundation institute for health tech program. And now your current role as vice president of early med tech development, uh, you're you're veritably the horse horse whisperer uh for startups and founders. Um so so with that I know that you focus a lot of your coaching, a lot of your mentorship and a lot of your leadership for that uh that cohort along the idea of design thinking. But I've got to be honest with you, I'm a simple guy from New Jersey, Scott's a simpler guy from wherever he's from, um, so with that, you know, design thinking to me sounds like one of those, those terms that people throw out, like artificial intelligence and uh, souby, that nobody really knows what they mean, and I'm one of them, can you do me a favor and help me understand what is design thinking?
2: Sure, sure, And and thank you for having me, by the way, it's an honor to be here. Um, you know, for me, I really think that that human-centered design or design thinking, both terms are kind of used interchangeably, um, is really a method that uses the obvious, what we all should be doing, but what a lot of startups forget to do. And it really breaks down to the core of going back to your customer every single time and making sure you're working on the right things, um, it's really all about understanding the problem that you're solving at a much deeper level, but once you start solving it continuing to go back to make sure you're on the right track. It sounds completely obvious there are several steps in design thinking they're not linear they're it's definitely an iterative approach and we can talk about what those steps are in just a moment, but it really is a methodology that's been being used for quite some time. All of the leading organizations in every other industry are using design thinking. Your Googles, your Apples, um, Samsung, anybody you can think of is using design thinking, even if they call the steps something a little bit different. But this is really about understanding the problems that you're solving quickly and then being able to quickly prototype, throw things out, bring things in when they work. And it's all around, if you're going to fail, if your first idea is not going to fail, and I didn't even like the word fail, if your first idea is not the right one, how do you pivot and make that next change. And it's really through talking to whoever your end customer is going to be and maybe even your buyer, they're not always the same people. So there are you know few key stakeholders that you need to involve whenever you're designing a product or a process. This can be used in process improvement If you're in the process improvement world, you talk about voice of the customer all the time, and this is really what it boils down to. And the really nice thing about design thinking is not only can you really avoid spending millions of dollars to build something nobody wants, which is the the core of what it's supposed to be, um, but you also can really get an early runway on your product market fit. When you're thinking about product market fit further down the line, how better to obtain product market fit than when you start by asking your customer at every step along the way. Before you start building something, you're going to prototype it on paper with a rapid prototype or prototype it using whatever you have random in your house Um, or it's in front of you in your workshop. You're not going to build this prototype that looks amazingly perfect on the first go around because you don't want to waste time and you don't want to waste money and you don't want to overbuild. We want to build your MVP to actually solve the problem. So I just said a lot and I could just keep talking for hours, but I'll let you ask some questions and we can get into it a little bit more.
1: Is it basically begin with the end in mind? Is that that what sums it up?
2: Um, a lot of it is begin with the end in mind, but really you're going to start with your customers. So kind of the first step, they say, in design thinking is what we call empathy. And that's going out and understanding the problem from other people's perspective. And I can't tell you, I mean, there's several different ways you can do this. A lot of people do it via surveys, but you really need to like ask questions, interview people, go observe people who have the problem that you're addressing It's one of those things where I've had physicians come to me in the past when I was at the early stage incubator that I worked at. So a really good example of the first time I kind of learned the hard way um, about how hard it is to tell somebody that they have an ugly baby. We had a physician come to us early on um, in in my innovation side of the career. And he said, hey, I want to create this device that's basically combining two devices. And I said, "Okay, what's the challenge that you're having? And he explained all that to me. And it made sense. Um, But when we started interviewing other people and asking them if this was a problem for them, it was overwhelmingly, no, we don't need a combined device. This is fine. Our hospital's not going to pay for a combined device. I don't see how this is going to save me time or money. So it was a problem for him, but we weren't able to validate it as a problem for for everybody else. And so the whole point behind design thinking is how do we, number one, ensure that what we're working on really, it truly is a problem for other people and how do we understand it from their perspective? Not everyone's going to have the same perspective that I have. I think they should. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but people are, people think differently about the ways they look and view things. And we've got to make sure we're designing the thing that's going to get people to buy our product down the line.
3: Hey, Susie, do you want to spend a minute or two just talking through this the typical steps in a design sure. thinking experiment?
2: Sure. So you're going to start with empathy and that's really where you're spending a lot of time, probably more time than most startups want to spend. Mm-hmm. The more people you can talk to, the better off your product's going to be. So you're going to start by going out and saying, Hey, I think I know what the problem is. Let me go talk to people about it. Let me go observe what's happening. And I can give you some observation stories as we move forward, if you'd like. Um, but observation is really, really powerful. So don't overlook it. It's huge. But then you're gonna take all of that data back. You're gonna look at the problem you've defined right now and you're gonna redefine it in a way that makes sense. You're gonna bring all of that knowledge that you just got and say, hey, am I working on the right thing, right? Um, For example, I had a hospital um, and I'll go back to the steps in one second, but I had a hospital up in Northern California that had a problem with um, breast milk that the parents would take and and leave and it'd be in the refrigerator and those bottles were getting mixed up. So she wanted to design a pretty expensive uh, machine to help get make sure that the breast milk bottles were all right. Basically, it was a vending machine type of type of situation. Mm-hmm. And when we started talking to people about it, what we found was that. The breast milk mix-up was happening because nurses were really busy. If they were going to go grab one bottle out of the fridge, they're going to grab five at once and then drop them all off. And that's where the confusion was happening. That's where the wrong bottles were being handed out. So even if you put them in this new expensive machine, you're solving the wrong problem. The nurses are still going to take out five at once. They're still going to walk down the hall. They're still busy. We have a different problem we need to solve. So it's really taking that mindset, using the knowledge that you have and redefining your problem and figuring out what do I need to solve now?
4: Susie, how many people do you normally talk to in order to make that evaluation where you feel like you've got the right answer or at least you have the truth?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard. I think it depends on what you're designing, what you're developing. Um, So if you're developing a really complex medical device, you might want to talk to a larger, especially one that's going to cost a lot of money to get to market. You might want to talk to a larger group of people. Um, But I I would say, I mean, I've talked to people with startups before and I've said, hey, have you talked to the customer? And they're like, oh, yeah, we talked to two of them before we started. Two is not enough. I will tell you that much. At a minimum, <laughs> talk to ten people if you can. At a very minimum, um, but I think the more you can talk to, the better. But then you also have to go back to those people at every step. So I'm going to redefine my problem, and then I'm going to go back to maybe not all of them. Let's say I talk to to thirty people, and they all were pretty consistent. So if you're getting a lot of consistent answers about the problem, you probably need to. We probably don't need as many. But let's say I talk to thirty people, and I get thirty different answers. Wow, there's a lot more digging in I need to do here. But once I define that problem, I'm gonna go back to the to the people I spoke with and said, does this sound right? Does this sound like I'm working on the right thing? Oh yeah, great, thumbs up. I'm gonna move forward, I'm gonna start brainstorming and I'm gonna to to kinda of take it to that next step which is really ideating around the problem and thinking, brainstorming around the problem. So you're gonna go back with your team or whoever and you're gonna start thinking about every crazy idea you can come up with. But before you start building anything or doing anything with that, you're gonna go back again to your customers and saying, Here's what we came up with. Here's the idea in our heads. What do you think about it? Does it sound like it's going to be the right fit? Okay, great. If you get the thumbs up, great. If not, you go back and you keep brainstorming. Um, But then you're going to go back, you're going to go in and you're going to do what we call rapid prototyping. And that is what I mean by putting your brain on paper. So it doesn't have to be this really fancy, you know, fabricated machined piece of equipment that you're building. You're going to build it with whatever tools you have in-house. And the point of rapid prototyping is really so that people can understand what you just described to them. I can tell you there have been multiple times that someone has called me and said, I have this problem and they describe it to me. And I know 99.9% in my head that I understand their problem. And then I say, well, let me just come over and look at it just in case. And I go and I look at it and it is not at all what I thought. We all interpret, you know, things in different ways. So we've got to make sure we're working on, we're working in desi- on the right thing and designing the right thing. And the only way to do that is to get your brain on paper. If I told all of you right now, draw me a picture of a dog, my guess is that all of our pictures would be different. What we have in our head, when we think about a dog is is different. I think of my dog, who's an Australian Shepherd. You might have a lab, you're gonna draw something different. You might draw, one might draw it outside, one might draw it inside. But it's sort of the same thing so if it's a device you might want to you might want to prototype it by drawing it out or taking even whatever you have around you I've got a nail file thing here I could tape something onto this and, and make sure that it looks and feels like how I how I think it's going to look and feel later on. It's really a down and dirty way to rapid prototype you can use storyboards you can use cartoon strips. Um, IDEO is the premier company in, um, in design thinking. They're the ones who kind of brought it up into, into every industry back in the day. And they've done things where they've cut out, you know cardboard cutouts and then have acted behind it to show somebody what an app might look like. This is a really cost-effective, cheap and easy way to go back to the folks that are having the problem and saying, did I hit the nail on the head here? What do I need to go back and do? They're gonna tell you what's wrong with it. And you're probably going to hear a lot That is not at all what I thought you were talking about when you were explaining it to me. Um, So that's kind of that next step. And then once you go through that rapid prototyping, you're, you're ending at testing, which is just really what I just said, going back and getting that user validation. Then you can maybe start building. You can maybe start thinking about things. But while you're building that prototype, you also want to think about things like, what does this solution have to have? And what are the nice to haves? And I think if you can keep people engaged by going back and asking That's going to help you from overbuilding what you're working on. I see all the time people will start out to build something to solve one problem, and all of a sudden they're trying to solve everything together in one application. And it just, it's going to take you years and cost you a ton of money, and it's never going to get you anywhere.
5: Susie, I'd like to ask a question. You know, you're talking about immersion and getting, you know, working with those clinicians and getting that validation, which is really important. I'm wondering, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks that said since COVID, getting access to some of those clinicians and getting that feedback has become very, very difficult. And I'm wondering in your experience, if you've developed any best practices or some ideas to help in perhaps get to those individuals so you can get that feedback. Do you have any techniques or suggestions for us there?
2: Well, you can start with Skinder's company if you want to. Um, so oh, well, he's got go. this great group called Clinician Exchange. Yeah. You know, I'm going to plug you, Skinder. Um, <laughs> you can reach out and get to physicians that way. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not even physicians you need to get to, sometimes it's patients. Right. Um, I, I really think that there's a lot of power in leveraging social media. Um, I have reached out to people on things like LinkedIn and said, hey, I have a question about something. Would you mind taking five minutes to talk to me? Sometimes they don't respond and sometimes they're like, sure, but when do you want to talk? So that's a really, really good and easy way to do that. On the patient side, there are so many groups out there. Like all of these patients are forming these organic groups on things like Reddit, or if you're old like me and you still use Facebook, Facebook, um, but they form these these groups and people kind of come in and talk about it. For example, we've got a project kind of in the queue right now around sleep apnea, and there are so many sleep apnea groups out on Reddit and in other forums that I can go in and just ask a question as if I'm any other person and just say, hey, who has trouble with this? Who's got who's got an issue here? And sometimes I'll even go on and say, hey, I'm working with a startup that has this problem. Would anyone care to give me any feedback on it? You'd be surprised at how many people want to talk to you, especially from the patient side. So if you can't get into hospitals and if you're a startup and you haven't worked in healthcare in the past, you probably can't, especially now before COVID, it was maybe a little bit easier, but for the most part, startups have a hard time getting access to patients, clinicians, physicians, that kind of thing. And so you've got to be a little bit creative about where you go and the things that you look for and take it with a grain of salt too, but you can also reach out to patient advocacy groups. If you're working for something on autism, for example, work, work reach out to one of the teams that's doing something with that. Um, there's a ton of patient advocacy groups around cancer and diabetes. Um, if you're working on a rare disease, that might be a little bit harder to find people, but they're out there. So you just got to do that legwork and talk to people like Skinder.
5: Yeah, and if I can just ask a follow-up and, and maybe just redirect it a little bit, um, you know, this process can be pretty expensive. So do you have any thoughts or, or best practices to how you can package that feedback, package that steps, and then communicate that to the investment community to help with those stages of funding that you would need to be able to, uh, you know, Skender's company is very fair price, but for other steps of the way, right, in terms of being able to, you know, do that prototyping, do those other steps that are needed. Uh, Do you have any thoughts for that?
2: Yeah, and I mean, it is hard because as much as we like to say, like, you know, build your pitch deck and do it this way, like yeah. every investor is looking for something different. You're going to talk to six different investors and they're going to tell you six different things. But that's OK. What you want to do is you still want to gather that data. So there's ways that you can package it up to say, hey, you know, we talk to if you especially if you only have like a three minute pitch or something. We talk to 100 physicians that are specialized in this area and. Eighty percent of them agree that this is that this is something that they would like to have. And you can use you can use quotes. Make sure you ask the physicians if you're open to using those quotes. If there's one or two that you talk to that really like what you're doing, ask them to join your advisory board. Ask them if they'll work with you, because having them on your advisory board shows that they care about what it is that you're doing. So I think there's ways that you can do that. Keeping the data straight, you're going to have to create a system for it, especially if you're doing it on your own. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that go out and do all this work on their own. And it's a lot. You're right. It is a lot, especially if you're going to go do real-time observations, if you have the ability to do that, or um, if you're going to do something more than just sending out a survey. Um, So you've got to create some kind of a system to keep all of that data straight, but I really think that there's ways that you can summarize some of those key findings at a really high level and then have that data on the back end to support it. So when, the, when um, an, an investor says, show me your data, you've got it right there and ready to go. There's, I mean, there are a lot of people that keep stuff in CRMs. There's a lot of people that keep stuff in Excel spreadsheets. It's really what method works best for you on a low budget. I'm sure there's probably tools out there that collects voice of customer. I'm sure there's software that does it for you, but it's probably not free. Um, I actually have never checked into that. I should probably look into that. be a good mm-hmm. thing to know. Yeah. Or
3: maybe we start a company there. there yeah. yeah there. <laughs> okay. The episode right now, we're going to start brainstorming. So. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. So I think this
2: is a good add on for you, what you're doing. Yeah, right. actually.
3: I'm
1: already rapid <laughs> prototyping. So, just...
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Susie, where does, where does the, the price of your solution get entered into the design thinking process? And, and where do you, when do you start evaluating that?
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think part of it has to come after you do some of that rapid prototyping. Once you kind of have a good idea about what you want to build, then you can really start looking into it. I mean, I think that there are some things you're going to know right away. If you're going to build something that you know is invasive, um, that's going to be a class two or class three device, you already know it's going to be millions of dollars probably to get you to market, Um, especially if it's something that doesn't exist there's a lot of factors you kind of have to take into consideration. So there's things you'll know before before you ever even have a design in mind. But there are also things that you're going to take that design and knowing how it needs to be built and manufactured in order to truly get that cost. Well, um, so-
4: what where, where I'm heading is the cost to solve the problem, right? Because there's yep. a lot of times where the solution is actually cost more than the problem. Yep. Right? And so how do you find that, you know, going into this before you figure out, yeah, I can solve the problem, but my cost is going to be too high to do that.
2: Yeah. And I think one of that is you kind of have to go out and do a little bit of research and market analysis. Know what the problem is. Co- You're going to have to know this anyway for your investors. What is the problem costing in, in time, money, patient experience, all of those other things, not just in dollars? But find out exactly what that's costing, and then as you as you move forward, you're going to have to think along the way, how do I develop this in a way that it's not going to cost more? And, and that's why a lot of rare disease stuff doesn't get worked on, because a lot of the problems they have from it are huge and very expensive, but it's so, for such a small patient population that it may not be worth spending millions of dollars to get something to market to some people. For me, I think it's all worth it, but mm-hmm. I, I get it. Like, you're you you you're not going to build a business to have negative ROI, right? <laughs> So it, it's definitely a hard thing that you really have to figure out um, and be thoughtful about it the whole entire way. I think there's a couple of things you have to be thinking about the entire time from the time you start working on a project and that's market access. Who wants this product? Why do they want it? Is it technically feasible? You know, we, we talk about three frames, you know, the financial part's a huge one, but we talk about three frameworks of it. Do people want this? Is it desirable? Yes or no. And this kind of, these three frameworks run through this whole process, Right. So is it desirable? Does anybody want it? You can make anything you want, but if nobody wants to buy it, it doesn't matter. So the next part, is it technically feasible? Can I actually do this? I I want to cure cancer with this roll of tape. Um, is that possible? It's not technically feasible. So I might as well shove that idea out the door. Um, and then um, what's the third word I'm looking for? Financial. Viability. Is it viable? I'm like, which one two daughters say? Um, so when you're thinking about viability, is it good for my market? Does it fit in with my market? So yes, I can make electric cars. We have them here in the US everywhere. Is it a good idea for me to try to introduce one into the market in a third world country that doesn't have, you know, a good electrical grid to keep these cars charged? Probably not. You're probably not going to have a lot of viability there. If you, can, if you can make sure that it's desirable to your customer and that's through that empathy early end work and all the way along the way, don't ever stop asking, keep asking, keep asking. If you can make sure you've got all three of those things, that's really where really good innovation kind of meets in the middle. And beyond that, you still have to think in the back of your mind, what is this going to cost me to get this to market? What is it going to cost to make? If I want to build a spinal implant out of titanium, can it be done? Yeah. Do people maybe want it? Yeah, I know a company, a 3D printing company that does it. Um, but it is a cost going to be too prohibitive that it's not going to get market adoption. So you always have to think about that cost. Is it going to be, you know, a better or worse cost? And is the hospital going to buy it? Because if what's working now is sufficient enough, even if your device is better, if it costs more, hospitals aren't going to purchase it.
3: I I yeah. I also think it it feels like it's one of those things where you need to take into account more than just the clinical buyer. Right. So you know, if we think about where we are today, um, everybody everybody always comes in with a great value proposition around the clinical side of it. Um, but when we talk to somebody, we're like, "Well, talk to me about workflow. Talk to me about operations. Talk to me about the financial aspect of it." There's like blank stares, and then a lot of it comes into a lot of that work that wasn't done up front. Kind of to your point, Susie, about understanding what is a total buying process. Um, and how do you how do you make sure you're solving for all of those things as opposed to just like coming up with a cool, cool widget? Right.
2: Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And and I think on the flip side of that, too, you've got to make sure that you're not over solving. Um, don't throw in all the there may there may be great things that patients are like, it'd be great if we had these seven things. But if they don't contribute to solving the problem, keep it out of your minimum viable product. Don't lose track of it. Keep it in mind for later so that you can do those add ons. But build what's going to solve your problem first and then add those bells and whistles when time is appropriate. But yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. You've got to keep sight on all of that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would think too, like, again, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about well-being for for individuals. And so there's that natural bias towards um, the clinical side of things, right? Hey, you know, how are we going to go about treating this disease condition better when you know i would argue for the industry we spend too much on healthcare right and yeah. so there's a ton of opportunities to come in and say hey and we're starting to see this like in the uh musculoskeletal space like you know orthopedics and that sort of thing where there are companies that are coming in and trying to displace knee replacements and hip replacements with really extensive physical therapy right that's a different answer than yeah you know how do you do a knee replacement which is you know it's a different question right and so you get a different answer so that's just Kind of something to think about on that.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's an important thing to note too. And I think with all the emphasis on wellness too, I think anything that we can do right now, especially when you think about this, you know, a rise of AI. I mean, AI has been around for a while. It's not like it's brand new, but it certainly is being talked about more than ever now. Um, but when you think about how can I use it to help predict who's likely to get this? If you can help people prevent from prevent keep, prevent getting sick in the first place, you're going to have. A lot better outcomes for everybody long term.
3: Exactly.
1: How is uh, how is design thinking unique in med tech versus anywhere else? Is there anything that is unique about med tech and design thinking?
2: You know, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's that med tech is overly unique, except for that our market is unique. Um, we have a hard. It's hard. To, it's really hard to get market adoption. There are things that you have to think about, like um, for example. You could build the perfect solution, but if it's going to take a physician outside of his normal workflow, it's not going to get adopted, you know, and maybe there's no way to integrate it into their workflow. So hospitals have to make that key decision. Is it worth another 20 minutes of my physician's time for every client, for every patient, when I probably only have 20 minutes with them to begin with, to build this in. So there are things like that that you have to think of. You have to really think about the, the industry itself and how it how it's a little bit different than, than the other industries that are out there.
1: And how do you how do you couple that with the fact that so much of this market, even in just this country, is heterogeneous as opposed to you know developing something for the Italian market, which is fairly homogenous, or the UK or Sweden? How do you deal with that in terms of your specs and you're looking at?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really that's a really good question. Um, I think that you that the more people that you can talk to, the better. But even in our own country, like you've got. Rural healthcare and the patient population that it serves is way different than maybe what you might see, you know, in L.A. or Orange County or, you know, one of these others, one of these other larger metropolitan areas. So I think you have to take all of that stuff into consideration early on. And you also have to think about different patient populations. You know, um, your Hispanics may have a larger, you know, larger issue with something than maybe if the black population does or maybe the Caucasian population does. So you've got to think about all of that stuff and social determinants of health are a huge, huge, huge piece of it. So please don't ignore them. It's not something that we talk about a lot in design thinking, but I think it's one of those things that I think for me, I feel like it should just be intuitive in what you're doing, but I've been in healthcare 17 years. If you're coming over from, you know, Google and you want to, you're like, I'm going to move over and I'm going to solve problems in healthcare, that's great. We need people like that. But they may not understand all of those social determinants of health and the landscape that we're looking at and the differences with patient populations and everything else. You, you know,
5: sometimes-, sometimes it's just a timing issue too, right? I mean, you can be doing this and you might be perhaps too early for the market. And I'm I'm just kind of curious if, you know, in your experience, if you've ever seen somebody get a little frustrated, it's not going the way they want, but all of a sudden through that immersion process, there was a aha moment. Have you ever ever experienced that?
2: Yeah, for sure. And I'd say probably one of the things I've seen that with a lot was um, some, some of these folks that wanted to start making things using virtual reality and augmented reality, maybe like six, seven years ago, the market was really skeptical of it, and it's getting more market adoption now. But back then, it was a it was a little bit too early. There was a lot; the headsets were expensive. There was a whole thing about how do we clean them. There's all of this like reasons not to use it that needed to really be addressed. And hospitals just weren't weren't open to adopting it so quickly. Now you see it's getting more and more traction in the market. Um, but I really do think we were I've worked with a few people back then who, you know, were like, we need this, we need this, we need it. I know that we need it, but nobody's going to buy it yet. We're a little bit too early for it. What else can we do? Is there something else we can put in place? And I think a lot of that goes back to design thinking. So if you're asking who the end who the purchaser is of it. And you hear no 25 times before you start building, then maybe you realize, hey, it's either too early or maybe it's not the right solution. And I think that's when you kind of start to see some of those light bulbs come on. But you almost have to, when I was at the incubator, we would do a lot of this work internally for the person who would submit their idea to us. I think now that I work with a lot more startups, it's. I can see that people get to understand that better when they're doing their own observations, when they're doing their own sort of voice of customer type of work. Um, But it is hard because sometimes you tell people that and they don't believe you either. Nope, this is the greatest idea ever. This is a billion dollar idea. You're dumb. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure we've all had those conversations with people and I get it. Like, I'm glad that you're passionate about it. Um, Will I work on it? No, but somebody else might.
3: (laughs) Right. It, it feels like one of the things that makes design thinking very effective is looking for the reasons why something won't work, right? Like we, we, so, and just for full disclosure, like we did a lot of design thinking when I was at Medtronic, we called it death threat driven design, which is like, figure out why it's going to, why your concept is going to fail and then solve for it. Right. Because yeah. truth of the matter is if you're starting a company and you're trying to do something, you are going to find out if your, your baby is ugly. Like it yes. is going to happen. Yeah. And
2: better, better know it soon.
3: Cause you can put braces on that kid at seven years old, if you need to, to get him in the beauty pageant, but you don't want him to get to, you know, to get to, I don't know. I, my, my analogy is breaking down, but, um, <laughs> but you get what I'm trying to say.
2: I got it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's exactly it. It's you know, I, when I was um, in early in my career before I was or early in my life, before I was in healthcare, I worked in the entertainment industry and I worked for a company that wanted to have a new like system design. They were basically using like a DOS based paradox system to do the work that they were doing. And it was really cumbersome and crazy. And um, they uh, hired a company, paid them a whole lot of money to design a system. And the whole way along the line, I like, are they ever going to talk to the end user? Like, Are they, how come they're not interviewing anybody, the people that are doing this work? And sure enough, millions of dollars and a lot of years later, the system never came to fruition. It never worked the way that they needed it to. Mm -hmm. And this is what that whole thing is about. Let's avoid doing that. Let's talk to our customers early. And before we build anything, you know, if you're working on a, uh, in an app, for example, you can storyboard it and say, "Hey, would this work for you?" Storyboarding for a couple of days is going to cost you way less money than building an entire app and then having somebody say, "Oh, this doesn't work for me." So that's really what it is all about: how do we fail fast, fail quickly, and then move on to the to the next and better solution until we find the one that we really think is the right one.
3: Can you talk to a little bit? Because uh, we have a we have a, a lot of folks on the commercial side of the business that would listen to our podcast. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how design thinking can be leveraged into something like the sales and marketing process
2: yeah oh absolutely i mean i think that there's a lot of different ways that you could integrate it especially if you know i mean you need to know your customer right if you're doing any kind of marketing you under you probably hopefully understand who your target market is and where those people lie it'd be really easy to reach out to folks and say hey this is what this is something that we're working on which message resonates better with you Which message do you think that you would take to heart? Which which message is more meaningful to you? Um, Those are the types of things that are really easy to do and ask questions about. And I don't think that that gets done a lot of the time. I think, you know, design thinking typically falls off once my product is like ready to commercialize. But mm-hmm. you've got to really think about it all the way along the line. And if you do these things, you know, I think early on you're going to end up with better product market fit. But even if you have product market fit, if nobody knows about your, your uh product or hears your message in the right way, you still may not get adoption. So I think it's always important to go back and ask those customers every step along the way, even once your product's ready for commercialization.
3: Yeah. Tuesday, okay. is
4: design thinking like Six Sigma in that it's a discipline that you have to study and then. Go through some sort of accreditation to do? Like, are you a design thinking graduate or like, what's the background of a design thinker?
2: Yeah, so I think it varies. I mean, I did the IDO early on, I did the IDO classes that you can do online. They're not super expensive, and I got their certificate or whatever. But honestly, it's something that anybody can learn. You don't need to have certification, you don't need to have, but what you do need to do is make sure that the concepts are always front and center in your mind. So, you know, if I am going to start a company tomorrow, I just want to make sure I'm reminding myself to go back to that well because people do forget. I have met people that said, oh yeah, we practice this. I think really when the last time you talked to your customer. Oh, it's been like six months, a year, you know. If, if you're building something, you got to keep going back. But you don't you don't need to have like a fancy certificate. You know, Stanford D School is a great school, and I think they've got a lot of resources online for free. Um, there's there's plenty of universities that are teaching this now. Um, that, but there's all kinds of free resources that you can that you can use as well.
3: Yeah. Um, biodesign is a program that came out of Stanford that a lot I know a lot of folks are familiar with. So it's it's a fantastic program. And they literally published a book. Um, it's a textbook. Uh, I don't oh, yeah. Yeah. So Stephanos Zenios and Paul Yock, uh, Josh Macauer, they did it. Um, and it's literally a textbook of here's how you do it. Um, but but it's really I think, Susie, back to the point that you made, which is it's about empathy. It's about rapid prototyping and it's about iteration mm-hmm. on feedback. and And if you're doing those three things with purpose and it's not just like haphazardly happening, you're kind of doing it even if you don't call it that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I was gonna throw out and and I think, love to get people's thoughts on this. I, I think every sales call is an opportunity for rapid iteration and feedback, right? Particularly yeah. early on, you've got a widget, you're trying to solve position burnout. And so you have a software that meshes with Epic and you're making sales calls on on IDNs. You know, the reality is, you should be testing out different languaging in that conversation. You should be, if you're a senior leader, or CEO of that company, you should be talking to your sales reps on a regular basis about what they're learning, what gets people interested, what do they not get interested in, what's the feedback, and and just you know, how are you incorporating that in the organization? And this last thought, and then Susie or others, I'd love to get your your reaction to this, is I don't think this is something you can outsource. In fact, I'll say it more strongly. you you, If you were the CEO of a company you darn well better be talking to your customers to understand. And the reason why is you're going to have a bunch of people coming to you with their opinions about what the market needs or what you're trying to do. And if you don't have that grounding, you're really just guessing. And, and that's yep. not a great way to gamble millions or tens of millions of dollars.
2: I completely agree. And, and every once in a while, I'll get somebody that'll say to me, Hey, you know, if they know I'm the CEO, they're not going to tell me the truth. You don't have to tell them you're the CEO hey, I'm working on this project, I really need candid feedback, tell me. Like you don't have to say I'm the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I said, people don't wanna tell people their baby is ugly. Um, and I think you know you also have to make sure that you're listening and hearing what people are saying. I have been with, um, I have one particular instance in mind where there was a product that I was working on with someone and we went to one of the hospitals who was who was open to giving us some feedback on it. And I sat in the room while this person gathered information, right? And there was some really positive information, but there were some really negative things too. And when we went back and people were like, how was the meeting? What I heard him say is, it was great. Nobody has any complaints with it. We don't need to change anything. And so you have to be open to receiving the information and then actually doing something with it. You can't let it hurt your feelings. And it's hard not to, especially when you've devoted a lot of time and energy into something. But you're really doing yourself a disservice when you don't listen to that feedback. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying.
5: And, and Scott, you, you kind of, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And there's another little interesting caveat that I picked up along the way. Uh, a couple of companies I've talked to actually would send out their intellectual property attorneys. And oh. work in the OR, work in the clinical environment with, with a salesperson or the clinical educator. And oftentimes they were able to write more uh, specific uh, intellectual property applications or mm-hmm. maybe more diverse to uh, cover different mm-hmm. uh, components to write a, a tighter intellectual property submission, which uh, I thought was brilliant when I heard it.
2: That is brilliant. I hadn't heard yeah. of anybody doing yeah. that. That's awesome.
1: Yeah that's an, an expensive
2: undertaking yeah i'm sure
1: it is, yeah, but <laughs> is it much
3: less expensive than having somebody challenge your patent That's oh, uh, very true that's true, true. Right? Okay. yeah absolutely yeah i i think that's one of those things where it feels like it's taking a lot longer to go and do it mm-hmm. but in the long run accuracy is way more important than efficiency right and, <laughs> I have, a, I have a, an example. So when I was at Medtronic, um, we did, a, my team, again, I ran innovation for uh, a division of Comedian for a while. Like we did a ton of surgical observations and, and we saw this one problem happening over and over and over again. Um, so what happens is when you have a, we were watching colectomies and we were watching all these colorectal surgeons do colectomies. And one of the issues that we saw was particularly when they're doing small bowel, but it's true in large bowel as well. Um, they would get a the GI doc who found a polyp or a suspected cancer that needed to be removed. They would tattoo it, but they would tattoo it on the inside of the colon. And mm-hmm. so now the surgeon is spending all this time trying to figure out where was it exactly because you know, it was insufflated when they were doing it and all this, st- this sort of thing. And so, and this is a true story, Scott Alexander was like, I got the solution to this. And I was like, this is genius. Like I'm going to make a billion dollars off of this thing because we're going to, come up with a new radio or a magnetic die and all this kind of stuff. And um, so then we went into, you know, we did some rapid prototype, rapid, rapid prototyping for testing and um, went out and I'm talking about zero for 10. We interviewed 10. (laughs) They're like, no, no. (laughs) Worst idea ever, Scott. So,
2: (laughs) but But aren't you glad you got that early?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Right. So it was, it was like two weeks, well, a little longer than that, but it was, you know, the matter of weeks and like thousands of dollars for travel and that sort of thing to figure out that, like, don't bet the farm on this versus, you know, saying, Hey, this is what we're going to do. Or we're a startup. We're going to build this thing because there are some, some specific issues around who does it, where do these patients come from and all that, that killed the ability to actually do something like that. And so that's. That's the value of it. It takes a little bit longer to really understand your customer, but then you really understand your customer. You don't do dumb exactly. things like, you know, betting your career on GI target. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And, and that's really the the key behind all of it is really mm-hmm. just understanding what the market wants. And that, you know, mm-hmm. later on down, I know so many startups that don't even think about product market fit or really even understand what it what it is or what it looks like until they get so far down the path that they're almost too far down to cha- to make a change. And that's too late you've got to start thinking about your customer from the very beginning. And, and that's it, That's a perfect example. Product so.
3: market fit. We don't talk. I know we got to wrap up, but product market fit. I just want to reiterate that because I know that we all know what that means. But the, the idea is, uh, for those who are listening, you have a product and you have a market that has said and is showing that they want to buy it. And we all say like, well, of course, but <laughs> I run a marketing agency for medical technology companies. I will tell you a solid 50% of the companies that come to me do not have product market fit. Yeah, They, they think they do, but as you get in you say, okay, are people, you know, what do you do? We do this. What, who buys the stuff? Oh, it's going to be fill in the blank. It's going to be <laughs> GI docs. I'm like, you are not ready to go and put gasoline on the fire because you don't know what you're you don't know who's actually going to buy the stuff. And so mm-hmm. I can't iterate any stronger, Susie. Like this is something that people really need to pay attention to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's huge. And it's going it's going to be the difference between getting a successful product to market and not, I can't say that's going to make you successful every time. There are still large companies Google, they had Google Glass, for example. That didn't get market adoption. Um, they do do this. It doesn't mean necessarily it's going to make sure that your product works, but you're certainly going to be ahead of the game if you know what the market wants and you understand that at the very early stages. And that you keep going back because things change in the market too. So what the market wanted six months ago or twelve months ago might not be what the market wants anymore. You may need to do a quick pivot in what you're working on already. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's why it's important to always keep going back too.
1: Yeah. So with that, we're going to start wrapping up here. Um, Susie, I, I think this has been enlightening for all of us in, in every respect. And I think it's incredibly enlightening for our audience um, because like you said, I, I think so many people try to rush in to the situation and aren't really thinking about it as a system. And I think it's been incredibly uh, hopefully that resonates the most with our audience. So with that, we'll just go around and do some final thoughts. Susie, I'll give you the chance to to allow you to go last and leave your final piece here. But why don't we start with uh, Tom? What are your, some of your final thoughts here? Well, well, first of all, I would
5: like to thank Susie. It was, it was very uh, interesting and engaging and I appreciate your time and expertise uh, like we, we all do. Um, I, my takeaway is, you know, when I think of this, I think of developing the culture of innovation, right? And, and what's involved in that. And, I, you know, what I heard uh, throughout this was really the listening skills, taking that feedback, you know, and, and not trying to make assumptions, but to really take it to heart. So, you know, developing that culture of innovation takes a lot of listening skills.
2: For sure.
3: Scott? Uh, yeah, do it. I mean, at the end of the day, design thinking is is hands down the, the right way to think about building a company, building a, a product, whatever the case might be. Just like for those of us who are familiar with Agile software development and the fact that if you're writing software, you're going to use Agile to instead of like a waterfall approach. Um, you do the same thing in the business side. So there's a ton of resources. Biodesign is a great book. Um, Steve Blank is a professor who wrote Four Stages of the Epiphany and a number of other books. I mean, there's so much stuff on this that, in a weekend, you can become really capable in this space and it will guarantee you that you will save yourself at least, I'm going to put this guarantee in writing if you need, if you actually <laughs> do design thinking the right way, you will save yourself at least one heartbreak in the next six months or your money back. So uh, <laughs> I strongly encourage you to do it. And you know, talk to Susie and Olira because they're good at what they do.
1: Love it. And Mike? Uh, Susie thank you
4: so much this is my first exposure to design thinking so it was really great for me and I think what I love about it is you know it's so applicable to not only designing the product but you know designing a sales message and even customer service practices or there's a lot of different application here that uh, you
1: open my eyes to so thank you
2: yeah, absolutely yeah
1: uh, from my perspective, and I'm going to sound a little bit like a homer here because, yes, we, we do a lot of voice of customer work, uh, but the prom, uh, the sorry promotion withstanding, uh, you know, in design thinking, if you aren't talking to customers and if your end value is too low, you can never design the right product. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have the cloud of subjectivity in our minds. We all have the thoughts of I came up with the idea, so it must be a bajillion dollar idea um but the reality is the market controls all especially in a capitalist economy like the one we're fortunate enough to live in and the market dictates all and the market is pretty efficient so if you aren't getting perspective from the market what are you doing and that is the cornerstone of design thinking so susie with that i'm going to let you get the final say
2: i don't think i could sum it up any better than that um I will say that anybody listening is probably thinking, What I think what I started out saying in the beginning is this is common sense. It is. A lot of people kind of employ this design thinking methodology without even knowing what it's called or without, you know, they just naturally do it. But most people don't. Most people get a little bit of information and then move forward and kind of forget. So even though it is common sense, hey, I'm making a product, let me ask what people want in it. Um a lot of times it just gets forgotten about or left to the wayside or we forget to go back to that well. So just always remember, go back and ask your customers with everything. Anytime you have a major change or you reach a major milestone, go back and ask your customers. That's probably the the easiest way to do this.
1: Fantastic. Susie, thanks for enlightening all of us. We really appreciate it. Um, And hope everybody got something out of this. I surely did. Uh, Please listen for future episodes of the MedTech Business Academy. And in the meantime, we appreciate And thank you, everybody. Have a great day.
2: Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you, Susie, for
0: getting into the nitty gritty of design thinking with us. We learned that we should be starting with what the customer wants by speaking to them directly and going back to them at each phase of development. We need to understand the customers from their perspective and go through the steps of design thinking to make a product impactful To their day. Listen in and don't forget to subscribe.